Faith Matters Podcast. I'm your host, John Morgan. This is the podcast for Multi-Faith Matters, and I am the host, John Moorhead, and I'm privileged today to have as a guest Daryl Van Tongren, in this third of a four-part series on humility, looking at evangelicals and multi-faith engagement and how they're exercising humility in that process. And I'll read uh, a little of Daryl's bio there. He's an associate professor of psychology at Hope College and associate editor of the Journal of Positive Psychology. The author of over 200 scholarly articles and chapters, his research has been covered in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and Chicago Tribune among other media outlets. And his, he has been supported by numerous grants from the John Templeton Foundation. He's the, also the author of a book that uh, I've been enjoying recently titled Humble, Free Yourself from the Traps of a Narcissistic World, a volume that looks at humility, the subject matter of our conversation today. Daryl, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on, John. Well, it's a great book, and I want to thank you for being a part of this series that we're doing uh, before we jump into some of the specifics, I always like to begin on a personal note. How did you come to, to veer into this area as both a personal and an academic area of interest? Yeah, that, you know, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, got, I first got introduced to humility in graduate school. Uh, I went to Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia, and uh, did a little bit of work with Ev Worthington, who's a forgiveness expert. And his positive psychology research team was just starting to venture out into other virtues. And so I connected with two other fellow graduate students, uh, Don Davis and Josh Hook. And the three of us really started to <clears throat> venture into studying humility. And there had been some work in the area that we were trying to build on. But really, it was, it was because of my collaborations with, uh, with those other folks that really piqued my interest in studying this, uh, this ancient virtue that scholars, philosophers, and theologians have been talking about for so long, but not much psychological research had been conducted. And then personally, uh, I, I've always just kind of found the, the topic of, of humility to be compelling. I feel like it's, uh, it's a character trait in which uh, I, I could probably develop more, but we live in a culture in which uh, it, it's difficult to do, it's not rewarded, and it's certainly not in the ethos uh, of of what seems to be um, most readily available when we look around. Yeah, unfortunately, it doesn't seem to be in the ethos of our politics, our religion, our social media. It seems like everything today is geared towards the opposite, narcissism. And so this That's is a right. helpful corrective. Now, you you talk about uh, humility as an ancient virtue. Philosophers have talked about it. The world's religions talk about it. Uh, how long has this been the focus of academic study? You know, I, I would say within the within the psychological field, I mean, at best, the late 90s to early 2000s, you might have had a handful. I mean, just, you know, fewer than a dozen articles on this. It wasn't really until the last decade that research really started taking off uh, on humility, probably about 2010 onward that research really started proliferating. And that was in part by some generous funding from the John Templeton Foundation to catalyze a lot of research grants on discovering new information about uh, about humility and really a, a focus that they've uh, shifted towards and, and the big part of the field has shifted towards is, is right up the alley that you're talking about and that's intellectual humility so that's really an awareness of the limitations of our beliefs and realizing that some of our beliefs uh, might be flawed and owning those limitations and then engaging other people with a sense of the curiosity to learn and a willingness to uh, be uh, edified by what other people might have to offer us. It's always good to look at the area of definitions. You know, we might assume that we understand what we mean by the terms that we use, but how, for the purposes of your research in this conversation, how are we defining humility? Yeah, so I think there's kind of two ways to think about it. So the one way to think about it is it's an ability for us to know ourselves, check ourselves, and go beyond ourselves. 
So by knowing ourselves, we really need to develop a self-awareness of our strengths and our weaknesses. So what are the things that I'm good at? What are the things that I'm not good at? What are the areas in which uh, I feel like I have uh, some skill? What are the areas where I'm a novice? Uh, to check ourselves really is to rein in our selfish motives, right? So we can be rather inherently selfish and we can tend to only look out for ourselves. And we have a number of biases that make it difficult for us to, to get beyond just thinking about ourselves. And so by checking ourselves, what we're doing is we're accepting blame and we're also sharing praise. And we're, we're making sure that we're not just prioritizing our needs only. And so finally, going beyond ourselves, we th we're thinking about the other person. We're engaging other people with empathy. We're imagining, what would it be like to be in their shoes? What, what's their perspective? And we're prioritizing their needs as equal to our own. So it could be a it, it could be as simple as knowing ourselves, checking ourselves, and going beyond ourselves. A, another, a second way of thinking about it, if that's, if that's too complicated, is just humility is about being the right size in the situation. Not too big, but also not too small. So in that, in that context, if you don't know something, the right size for you is to be pretty small. You're a novice. You should go in with an open mind and a willingness to learn. If you're the expert in an area, if, if a surgeon comes in and he tells me or she tells me that I need a surgery, I'm going to listen to her because I'm not a surgeon and I want to defer to her expertise when she's, you know, letting me know about the surgery that I need to, need to have. It would be arrogant of me to try to correct her and, and assert that I know better than she does well outside my particular domain. So it's about being the right size in the situation. Well, that all sounds great. And you would think that that's, you know, I'm sure you're going to mention here as we get going that there are benefits to adopting humility and finding that that balance in, in life. And yet we find it such a challenge. Uh, I, I got into this area of interest uh, through some grant research. I discovered social psychology and wanted to bring various aspects of that discipline into conversation with theological assumptions that many Christians have about different areas of their life, including how they relate to people in other religions. And I discovered along the way that there are certain psychological mechanisms and processes that uh, we often aren't aware of that prevent us from exercising things like humility. Can you talk about the human psychology? Why aren't we more humble? Yeah, and it's an unfortunate thing because, you know, it, it's one of the things that makes humility such a tough sell is because the way our brains are wired are such that it's really an uphill battle to be humble. So like you mentioned, uh, we have a number of cognitive biases that are kind of operating all the time. And we're not really aware that these things are operating. We just think, well, this is the way the world works. So for example, one bias is what's called the con what's called confirmation bias. So confirmation bias is we tend to just seek out information that already confirms what we already believe. And as soon as we get information that confirms what we already believe, we just stop looking for other information and we disregard facts that might contradict what we believe. So I'll put this into a practical example. Let's say I really want a red pickup truck. That's the thing I really, really want. I'm only going to do research that suggests that this brand, this model is a, is a great pickup truck for me to buy. And I'm going to ignore all of the, the facts and figures that show it's actually not very good on gas mileage, it's not very safe, it's rated poorer than some other options for me, because the thing I really want is that red pickup truck. And so if you can imagine you know, replacing the red pickup truck with uh, our, our beliefs about God or how we think we should interact with other people. We're pretty, when we get pretty committed to an idea, we view the whole world through that idea and we only seek out information that confirms it, nothing that challenges it. So if, if, I'm, if my political views are right of center, I might only check out uh, more conservative media outlets like Fox News. Or if I'm left of center, I might only check out uh, more left-leaning outlets like MSNBC or something like that. The problem with that is that we're only hearing voices that are similar to our own. And then our views can get increasingly narrow. So confirmation bias is one of those things. A second one is what's called the above average effect. So all of us tend to think that we're a little bit above average on most domains. Now, the irony of that is you don't have to be particularly good at math to acknowledge we can't all be above average. This is statistical impossibility, right? There are things that we're better at and other things we're not so good at, but we tend to overinflate how we view ourselves. And so we tend to walk around thinking of ourselves perhaps more highly than we should, more favorably than we should, 
I'm not really willing to acknowledge some of our weaknesses. And so when you start putting these, these biases together, when, when we start seeing the world the way we want to see it and we inflate the way we view ourselves, what we get is this, this pretty toxic mix of what people call a fragile high self-esteem. So by that, what I mean is, I think I'm pretty important. I think I'm, you know, I'm, a, I'm uh, more special than the average person, but I, that, that position is precarious. And anybody that pokes at it or anyone that challenges it can cause me to deflate. And then when that happens, I get really defensive or sometimes I get really aggressive. And that's really when things break down. Well, I've, uh, before looking at social psychology, I've got some scholar friends who are into the sociology of religion. I'm reminded of Peter Berger and the idea of the social construction of reality. And that we're always constantly through our social groups reinforcing what we assume to be the case. And, and it sounds like there's this feedback loop that goes on if we're only in certain networks and, and choosing, choosing certain sources. Is that correct? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I love that idea of the social construction of reality. And sometimes when people hear the social construction of reality, they get a little nervous because they say, wait a minute, do, do you mean that there's there's nothing true out there? And, and that's not that's not it at all, right? That, that's a little bit of a misunderstanding. The social construction of reality is more, each of us brings a particular lens or perspective to a situation. And there's an actual thing that's happening, but each of us view it in a slightly different way. And in our mind, that becomes the reality. So when I teach this in my, my class, so I teach an intro psych class, also a social psychology class, I, I tell a story about one time my wife and I were heading out to go out to dinner, and we witnessed a, a pretty horrific car accident right in front of us. And we were very shocked by it. We got out. We helped the people in the car. Luckily, everyone was okay. And when the police came to question people, they questioned people individually. Now, what I saw was I saw um, you know, a, a blue sedan hit a white van. My wife saw the white van hit the blue sedan. Mm. We, we completely got it mixed up. And we were sitting right next to each other. And we had no motivation to do anything but tell the truth. And both of us uh, saw different things. Uh, to this day, I'm pretty sure she was right. She's usually much better at things <laughs> like this than I am. But if you can imagine in situations where I have more of a vested interest, Right. If it comes to something like my religion or my politics, where I really have to be right, I'm probably going to be less likely to admit that I'm wrong or less likely to uh, take someone else's perspective, even though we're both trying our best to make sense of the reality that's unfolding in front of us. So what it reminds me is I'm imperfect and I can get I, I can hope to get close to approximating what the truth is, but I'm always going to fall a little bit short. And walking around with that humility means I need other people's perspective to help paint a clearer and more accurate picture of the way the world works. I would imagine one of the challenges uh, for a scholar like yourself is getting at uh, the unvarnished truth of where people are and groups are in regards to this process. Uh, in self-reporting, we're always going to want to present the best or what we think uh, maybe an academic wants to hear and so on. So what kind of process do scholars use to get at what's really going on with individuals and groups in this area? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. That's really, uh, you know, John, why I think the research on humility got stuck in the beginning. So a lot of times when researchers want to measure something, they'll give someone what's called a self-report survey. So you can indicate like how extroverted you are by answering questions about your, your tendencies and your uh, you know, preferences. Now, if you hand someone a self-report survey on humility and they, and they give you a really high score of humility, is it that they are actually humble or would a truly humble person kind of rate themselves lower because they realize they've got a lot more to grow and only a truly narcissistic person would say, oh, I'm the best at humility. And in the same regard, if someone gives you a low score on humility, would that be indicative? Well, yeah, maybe they are humble. Or is this someone who knows themselves well and well, they're not humble at all. And so researchers really went round and round about, you know, can we trust this? So that one way around it was they asked people's friends or family or romantic partners or acquaintances or coworkers to rate them on humility. So instead of doing a self-report, they did what's called an other report. And so that'd be someone else, some other person is reporting on your humility. 
and and that worked for a while and then we realized hey you know that's a pretty good uh, way of assessing this so if you were to hand out this survey to my coworkers what would they think of me or to my to my wife or uh, you know to my my siblings what would they rate me and so over time they've developed alternative ways of assessing this we can look at people's behaviors in a situation because most people are able to to tell, oh, that, that, that's a humble way of behaving versus that's kind of an arrogant way of behaving. And at the end, what they realized was self-report actually wasn't that bad. You know, th there's a pretty, there's a decent relationship between how humble other people say you are and your own awareness of your own humility. It's not perfect, but it's not terrible. So there's a number of different ways. You could use self-report. You can use kind of a friend or acquaintance report, uh, or we could... Uh, assess it behaviorally. And then they've also developed some more implicit measures that are kind of a little bit more complicated and difficult to assess. But we've got a wide range of uh, tools in our assessment tool belt to, to look at this. One of the chapters when I when I first get any book, maybe I'm like everybody else, you open it up and you scan, you look at chapter titles and see what jumps out at you so that you can anticipate some great things to come in the read. And when I saw one of your chapters, reducing defensiveness, and I thought, wow, uh, because not only in politics, but also in religion, I don't know how many conversations, whether online or in person, and people, I assume, are well-meaning, but defensiveness is there right at the beginning. And we think we're trying to persuade each other when in reality, it's just dueling defenses that are in operation. Uh, so the question is, in regards to what you call cultural worldviews in your book, Humble. Uh, what Again, what kind of mechanisms are in play? Why are we so defensive about those things that are so, that we find so meaningful and important in life? Yeah. So John, this is, there, there's a lot to unpack here. I'm sure. so glad that you, I'm so glad you brought this up. So, you know, for your listeners, cultural worldviews are really um, ways in which we can make sense of the world. And so for a lot of people, uh, especially in the United States, that's going to be religion, right? That, that's a, a big worldview. So cultural worldviews help us understand how the world came to be, our place in the world, uh, what's right and what's wrong. So you can kind of think about it like an overarching framework for how we interact with the world and, and view the world. Now, the reason why cultural worldviews are so important is because a lot of times they answer what scholars call existential questions. So existential questions are these deep questions that humans have been wrestling with for, you know, for millions, for, for years and years and years, right? So for, for a long time, humans have been wrestling with what does it mean to be human? And so some of these questions are, you know, what happens to me after I die? You know, what makes life meaningful? How do I make decisions in, in what feels like a chaotic world? And so the idea is that for existential questions, th the reality that one day we're going to die, the reality that we have to come up with a meaning for this life, the reality that we're in this world, it feels like alone and separate from other people. The reality that we have to figure out what our identity is. And the reality is that we have to make decisions in what feels like a chaotic world. All of those things should ought to produce a lot of anxiety for us, right? So realizing like, oh my goodness, one day I'm going to die. That, that should be incredibly anxiety provoking for us. But cultural worldviews offer the answer to those questions. So if we imagine a, a Christian uh, worldview, for example, that might say, okay, what happens to me after I die? Well, death is not the end. Death is not a period. It's a comma or it's a semicolon, right? I, I can live on after death. What makes life meaningful? Well, you know, pursuing God's will or loving others with, with the love of Christ. Or, you know, what's my identity? My identity is found in being a child of God. Those cultural worldviews answer those questions. And so when they, when they answer those questions in a satisfactory way, we're not anxious. We're not nervous. We're not scared. There's no, uh, there's no threat. Okay, so if we, if we think about that's what cultural worldviews do. If you encounter somebody else who has a different cultural worldview, and, and in fact, a starkly, what seems incompatible cultural worldview, one of you has to be wrong. And the way it usually goes, if it's me or someone else, well, I'm not wrong, they are. And so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna double down on protecting my worldview. 
and the other person is going to protect their worldview just as, as tough. And we're each going to dig in our heels. And like you said, we're, it's going to be two defensive reactions pushing against each other. And the reason for that is the stakes are so high. I can't be wrong because if I'm wrong about this, am I wrong about everything? And that's why we defend every aspect of our worldview. Right? We, we can't give up an inch because if we give up that inch, does it also mean I'm wrong about what happens after death? Does it also mean I'm wrong about what makes this life meaningful? And that's incredibly threatening. And now I can imagine some of your listeners might say, Daryl, that's all well and good, but you know, my intentions are pure. My intentions aren't to be defensive. My intentions are really to be a faithful follower. Right? My intentions are to, uh, to live into the reality that I, I, you know, I'm defending the truth and that I'm really trying my best to share the love and the freedom of my, of my beliefs with other people. And, and I understand that motivation. And I think that that's a lot of times how it lives inside of us. And you might imagine if you could, if you could step out of uh, and take the perspective of the other person, they might be trying to do the same thing. They might also be trying to live faithfully to their worldview. They also might be trying to convince you and offer you the freedom that they see in the world from their worldview. And so sometimes we get stuck, right? we get, we get at these impasses where it seems like each person's worldview is incompatible with the other. And so what we do is we double down, we hold tighter and we defend. One of the, the things I've read about and, and seen all too often, in fact, I just saw it recently in on a Facebook exchange where I posted a video where I had a, a cordial conversation with a Latter-day Saint friend and colleague, just allowing them to describe their lived religion. And I uh, posted it in a Facebook group for a conversation, and immediately it turned into dueling aspects of de defensiveness. And one of the comments from one of the Christians was really concerning, and it's not limited to this individual, but the, there was a concern that if we if we're too nice, if we're too cordial, that somehow we're compromising not only truth, but we're compromising with evil. Why do we moralize our cultural worldviews and then not only just disagree and have a different opinion, but the other person is ignorant or evil or something like that? Yeah, and, and, and John, what you've described is goes on in countless situations among countless people, sadly, too often to count. We moralize it in part because, and, and this breaks my heart to say, it's easier to, de it's easier to dehumanize someone when we cast them as evil and we cast them as wicked. It's easier to think of them less as a human, right? And so one of the things it can do by, by moralizing other people, by you know, putting us on the side of, of goodness and righteousness and other people on evil, it does two things. One thing is, like I mentioned, it makes it easy for us to just not even think about them as human beings. And so we, we can treat them with disregard and with disdain while maintaining this view of ourselves as being a pure and righteous defender of the truth. The second thing it does, and this is something that people don't like to admit, it creates this false dichotomy between good and evil. Because, and, and I'm not saying that certain things aren't evil or certain things aren't good. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm rather saying is each of us has good and evil in us, right? None of us is is uh, without blemish. N not a single one of us is completely pure or completely moral, right? We don't like to think about the fact that even somebody who commits a crime is also a, a child, right? Might also be a sibling or a parent or a friend. They may also uh, have needs or desires or get sick or need care. Right, it's easier. So psychologists call this moral amplification. So what we want, we want our good people really good, and we want our bad people really bad. And it's hard for us to think about the fact that each of us are both good and bad. Right, none of us is completely blameless. None of us is absolutely pure, and and, and this can feel threatening. None of us absolutely know the complete truth. One of the questions that then arises is how do we reduce defensiveness? I think the assumption, the default is, it was for me years ago, was I, I, I'm recognizing, I'm aware this person's being defensive, but the way I'll counter it is I'll just give them some new facts. If they just get some new information, they'll reduce defensiveness, they'll come to see it my way. I'm not saying that facts aren't important, but, but are facts, is that really the best way to come at this defensiveness when, when cultural worldviews are at play? 
Yeah, so I've been studying this for a while. I've been studying defensiveness even longer than I'm studying humility. I kind of, that's kind of a bit of how I backed into it is I really got into this cultural worldview research even years before humility. And John, one thing I found is um, the only person's defensiveness you can really work on is your own. Um, if you want to try to, you know, kind of uh, disarm other people, it's almost a fool's errand. It really is. Um, it's much better to work on your own defensiveness because you presenting them other facts, th while you're doing that, they're just thinking of counter arguments. And then they're going to pre present you with other facts. And then at the end of the day, you'll both disagree what each of you mean by the word facts. And then you'll kind of both walk away more entrenched, sadly, more committed and more uh, unwilling to listen to the other person than before. So the only person's defensiveness we can actually really work on is ours. And so one of the ways we do that, if if clashing worldviews are threatening because they threaten our sense of meaning and they bring up these existential concerns, one of the ways that we can get around this is by affirming other areas of our life that have meaning. And I know that seems a bit strange, but as we start questioning or becoming more open to the possibility that we could be wrong, because I'm, I'm, you know, I've lived long enough to know I'm wrong about a lot of things most of the time, every day. <laughs> um, as we open our, ourselves to that reality, it's going to feel a little anxiety provoking. And so we can find meaning in other areas. We can, in, we can really invest in relationships that provide us meaning. We can look to uh, you know, other causes that benefit other people to provide our lives with meaning. So we can start shifting a little bit uh, in kind of where we find our meaning from as we kind of loosen our grip on our cultural worldview. And, and then one other thing, you know, bears mentioning here, um, I was pretty convinced uh, by a book I read, and, and perhaps you've read this book called, by Pete Enns, it's called The Sin of Certainty. And, and he, he writes to, to Christians and says, you know, really what God is asking for us from us is not certainty. It's not that we know with absolute certainty everything there is to know about what it means to be a Christian. He says, instead, what God is really looking for, for from us is trust, right? And trust is this idea that you're in a relationship that someone else is going to make things okay, even if you don't have all the answers, even if you don't know everything, you can still trust that person. And I think shifting from needing to know into having trust allows us to admit some places where we might not know and it prioritizes that maybe the thing we should be thinking about in these situations isn't being right, but it's being in a right relationship with other people. That's very helpful. I think the natural tendency is to, well, I can change others. Maybe if we change ourselves and get in that social context, the other will respond. I remember years ago, uh, growing up, when my folks were going through counseling, and there was a book of theirs, and they talked about relationships as a dance. And you can't, you shouldn't try and change the dance of the other person, change your own step, and they will in relationship change with you. Is that kind of the dynamic? That's that takes place? That's absolutely right. I, I can't tell you how many times I've been in a situation that I feel might be escalating a little bit. You know, no, no nothing scary, but just, you know, we're, we're escalating or, uh, you know, we're, you can kind of tell in a situation, in a conversation when people are stopping listening, including ourselves, and we're just kind of more assembling arguments. And even if you say something like, hey, you know, that's a really good point. I'd love to hear more about that. Or, yeah, I'm really not sure. Tell me what you think. It, it's amazing what the shift will bring. The other person, acknowledges that and they're like, oh my goodness, you're, oh, you're being open. And then, you know, humans are, are interesting in that we, we kind of like mimicking each other. We, there's this, this concept called social mimicry. So if all of a sudden I'm being open-minded, you know, most people, not everybody, some people, you know, have, haven't kind of matured in this way, but most people, once they see that, they'll say, well, hey, thanks for asking. And actually, you know, what, what, what if you shared? I know it's not always that easy. But sometimes if you are the one to make the first step to be open, to ask, to inquire about the perspective, say, hey, tell me what tell me what made you think that. But genuinely being curious, not saying, tell me why you came to this conclusion so now I can prove to you why your conclusion is wrong, but genuinely being curious. You know, one of the things um, that's helpful is just imagining, and I know it's hard for us, that the other person's actually trying their best. They're, they're not out to get you. They don't have... Um, a malevolent agenda. They're actually just trying their best with the way that uh, their life has gone, with the information that they have, with their own experiences. Um, 
And we would hope that they'd give us the same assumption that we're also trying our best. Another thing that you talk about in connection with uh, humility in your book, Humble, is the important topic of empathy. Um, and I remember as a part of my kitchen, I got a stack off camera here of books on social neuroscience and social psychology related to humility. I'm still working through, but I found an interesting clip in a, a video series on PBS on neuroscience and how that plays out. And the neuroscientists did an experiment where they, uh, they did uh, finger pricks uh, for test subjects and the pain center lights up. And, and when somebody sees that, we empathize with others in pain. Uh, and then they took, to continue the experiment, they, they added name labels, Scientologist, Christian, Jew, Hindu. And then they put people in and they did the finger stick image. And the discovery was that people empathize with the pain with their own in-group rather than the out-group. There wasn't very much neural response at all. And the neuroscientist pointed out that this was a pre-conscious response so it's not like we're, we're deliberating, you know what, should I care about this? It's just something that we naturally do. We care more for our in-group, our tribe. How can we uh, work to build more empathy? Yeah, that, that's so fascinating. And, and, I'll, and I'll preface by saying, you know, when I first uh, started doing research in psychology, the more that I learned, I, at first I started feeling really bad. I started feeling really guilty, like, oh my gosh, what, you know, am, am I am I that horrible of a person? Like when you find these things out, like why would I not care about others? And I love that you said, this is pre-conscious. So part of this is just realizing this is the way that our, our brains are. This is the way it is that our, our minds have been uh, organized. You know, we don't, uh, we don't need to blame ourselves for this, but we do need to take responsibility for being aware of this information and then acting. And so sometimes when things happen pre-consciously, the way that we can overcome those is by being is by slowing down, by being a little deliberate. So in the moment, taking a breath, taking a pause, and having a conscious correction about what you want to do. And I love I love the thought of building empathy because that really is the key to humility. I mean, if if you could kind of boil down what humility is, and you could build one character virtue, one character strength. I would say it would be empathy. So empathy is both that emotional attunement that you talked about. So kind of emotionally feeling what someone else might be feeling. And it's considering the other person's perspective. So there's this, this heart component and there's also this head component. And so, you know, by building empathy, you can, you, you can do a number of different things. One thing is you can start surrounding yourself with people who are different than you. Um, and, 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 our worlds are oftentimes organized in such a way that that's difficult. And we have to be intentional about doing that because we, we tend to find friends who are similar to us. We tend to, you know, for those of us who go to church, go to churches that feel comfortable and feel consonant with what we believe. And so we need to go out of our way to, to be around people who are different from us because the more you do that, the more you realize they're just like you and me, right? They both, they struggle over, you know, the rising cost of milk and, Cheerios versus Fruit Loops and things like that. And you start seeing other people, you, you start becoming more aware of their humanity. And you also start seeing their perspective and you realize, you know, these, these folks are just like me and they are trying their best. Another thing that you can do is uh, a lot of us aren't very good at actually keying into our own emotions. Emotions kind of have a bad rap and sometimes, you know, talk on emotions can, uh, you know, can vary for folks. And so we actually need to be good at identifying our own emotions. So when we do feel that pre-conscious tug towards somebody else, we can kind of lean into that. When we feel you know, uh, sympathy or compassion for someone else, we can build on that. And then finally, realizing that, like you said, our empathy is probably going to be more highly tuned to people who are like us, our religious in-group. Right? If you're a Christian, you're going to be more tuned into other Christians to, to go beyond that. Right? And And for Christians to think, you know, Jesus always sought out people who were on the fringes. Jesus sought out people who weren't necessarily in the fold or part of the, you know, the celebrated church community. Jesus really sought out the people who society really wanted no one to do, nothing to do with. So we could kind of argue Jesus was looking out for the out group, the people who might not have naturally uh, been targets of empathy. So if we can be intentional about seeking that out, I think that would go a far way. Well, I just want to acknowledge for uh, listeners and viewers the challenge and difficulty of what we're asking people to try to do. Um, 
we're asking people to, to, to consider uh, working on their own empathy for not only those who just simply have a difference of opinion on where should I get a hamburger. Uh, again, it goes to these deep senses of cultural worldview where we find meaning and purpose and identity. But it just seems so incredibly necessary in light of our, our polarized world. Do, do you see a great, greater sense of urgency now for the, this humility research that you're doing? Goodness, I, I do. Um, you know, it's, I, I think that we're seeing an increasingly uh, widening gap almost on, on every issue. And it's heartbreaking, whether it's politics or whether it's religion. Uh, you know, I, I know people who, who get ostracized just because they're friends with people who have different views than the majority of their friend group. Or people who, you know, family members who have cut other family members out just based on who they voted for or, uh, you know, a certain belief that they may have. And, and that's heartbreaking to me. And I'm, I'm thinking, these are these are families or these are friend groups that are being torn apart. Can you know, is there any opportunity for humility to help mend some of these relationships? So to me, I mean, I, I really think that humility is des is what this country desperately needs, what this world desperately needs. We're an increasingly narcissistic society. We're increasingly focused on ourselves, on promoting us, on putting ourselves first. And we're really losing our ability to function together as a healthy collective, a healthy community, and even to disagree well. You know, one thing I want to clarify is humility is not being wishy-washy or it's not being, you know, it's, it's not just having a non-committal stance. But how you disagree and how you engage in difficult conversations makes such a difference. Being truly open-minded, being truly willing to listen. And then if at the end of the day, you still hold core convictions that's fine. And that's, that's not, a, you know, that's not concerning and that's not arrogant, but how you convey what you believe, how you treat other people and how you come to your decisions. You know, are you basing it on evidence? Are you basing it on, you know, uh, thoughtful critique? Those things make all of the difference. And that's where humility, I think, can be so powerful. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that wishy-washy yeah. aspect. I think that's a common misunderstanding uh, whether in politics or in religion, that if I am humble, if I listen to the other, if I extend empathy, that means in many people's minds, the compromise of convictions. But what you're saying is one can still retain one's convictions, doesn't mean they don't get reassessed periodically after interaction and reflection, but that that's not incompatible and contradictory to adopting a posture of humility. That, that's absolutely right. We've even done a research study where we looked at um, Christians' views of, of non-Christians. And even once we accounted for the orthodoxy of their beliefs. So what we mean by that is kind of how committed they were to kind of core, uh, universally endorsed Christian beliefs, even after accounting for that. The degree to which people were humble predicted that they actually viewed and treated non-Christians more favorably. So they were less defensive. So, so this humility is above and beyond. It's kind of, even if someone holds firm to their beliefs, treating and viewing other people's hum people humbly really has an effect on how they interact with them and, and, and the, the ways in which that they're less defensive. One of the uh, other chapters that piqued my uh, interest in looking through your book is Bridging Divides. Uh, because that's what we try and do here at Multi-Faith Matters in the religion context is, is bridge those divides and do it in a positive way. And you note in that chapter that people who claim epistemic exclusivity for their religion, my religion is the truth, tend to not score very high in humility. There are those that are out there, but that tends not to, to be the case. And so that is also, you know, connected to, the, to our various identities that we have. Uh, for those who I think it's a natural thing for everybody to think their religion is correct. That's why we have the clash of these cultural worldviews. But how can we be more aware of the various identity issues that we have and how those might conflict with others and their identities? Yeah, that, yeah that's a great, uh, it's a great question. Right. And so, you know, starting with this idea of this epistemic exclusivity, like, I love how you put it. It's that my view is the only way that's right. And that is perhaps in the background for the way most people walk through the day and most people operate. 
And it's pretty unsettling. And, you know, and people might say, well, Daryl, why on earth would I believe something if I didn't think that I was right? <laughs> which, is a fair, which is a fair critique. But what I might offer is, at the end of the day, what most people probably have, or what I argue they should have, is I hope um, what other people have called a critical commitment. So what, it, what by a critical commitment, what folks mean, what I would mean is you've thought critically about why you believe and you're committed to those beliefs. But with that, you can also hold the humility of knowing you could be wrong. And, and part of that, I think, that helps situate our ability to own that we could be wrong is think about over time, all of the things we've actually thought we were right about, but humanity has been absolutely wrong on. Like whether the earth rotates around the sun or the sun around the earth, right? Uh, the way in which various things about science might work. Uh, all the time, there are new scientific discoveries where we say, oh, this is how it was. And then, you know, you decide it's not like that anymore. I mean, when I was in school, Pluto was a planet. Then it wasn't. I don't know if Pluto is a planet anymore. And I know that's a minor thing, but all the time we realize areas we, we might be wrong. So these are areas where we could learn more information. It's possible that, you know, a, a very uncomfortable thing to think about is if you were born in a different country, right, on, halfway around the world, would you be just as committed to that religious faith as you are to your current religious faith based on where you were born now? And if it says, if it's as capricious or as seemingly random as where you were born, right, it indicates a large percentage of the religious faith that you might have, I think it opens up the reality that, you know, I might not know everything. There are other people who have perspectives that are valuable. I'm going to hold my commitments critically, but I'm also going to realize I could be wrong and I'm going to be open to revise those. You know, now when we think about how other identities intersect, right, when we're thinking about um, sex or ethnicity or sexual orientation or gender expression or gender identity, things like that, we have to realize that you know, when it comes to this cultural humility, oftentimes the group that uh, has, has the power, the group that is the majority group, they tend to view their, their perspective as superior. And they tend to say, well, this is the cultural worldview that is right, and it's better than the other cultural worldviews. I'm not really willing to listen. And that's, that couldn't be further from humility. Cultural humility is realizing that my cultural worldview, my way of doing life is not superior to others. And in fact, I want to demonstrate a curiosity, a willingness to learn from others because I can see strengths in other perspectives. I can realize that other people's ways of, of their life and of engaging culture and, and doing things is valuable, right? And, and we have this tapestry of differences that really strengthens our society. Let me ask a question, a personal one that I had that came to mind in doing some prep for writing a, a grant application in this area. I was reading a, a summary article that was trying to bring together various threads from research in, in psychology on humility. And it tended to find it in terms of intellectual humility, the cognitive aspect. And it really didn't, th this particular document uh, didn't seem to have uh, think that the the affective dimension, the emotions were were really significant to understanding it. And it tended to define intellectual humility as going into a process, acknowledging that one might be wrong. And I appreciate all that. Um, however, in my interactions with different uh, Christian groups across the country who are practicing intellectual humility, I think their self-understanding, which of course could be wrong, uh, is that they didn't go into it saying, you know what, I might be wrong, therefore I want to develop relationships with Muslims and with Buddhists and so on. It, it seemed more uh, along the lines of something we might call a humble confidence. That is, they thought their worldview was correct, just as their, their conversation partners did, but they weren't threatened by the other, and they went into it with an open mind. Over the course of relationships and conversations, they did discover some things that they thought that had been wrong, but that wasn't at the, at the forefront. So my question, I guess, after all, all that preamble is, what is the place of the emotion in, in concert with our rational faculties? And, and what about this idea of it, it's not just going in thinking it might be wrong, but it's more of a stance of openness? John, I, I love that you described how you described that because, you know, in the early kind of part of the book, what I lay out is that humility is actually about, is about a, a felt sense of security. So people who are deeply humble are secure in their place in the world. 
because they're not seeking approval from these external contingencies, right? They're not seeking validation from other people or their success or their wealth or, you know, how much travel they post on Instagram. But instead, they know that they're already enough, they're already loved, they're already worthy. And so I love that, that, that secure confidence, right? So people who are humble have the security so that rather than having that high, fragile self-esteem that when it's poked becomes super defensive, that security allows them to engage more non-defensively. So like you said, someone shares someone and they say, wow, I hadn't thought about that. And it doesn't disrupt their entire worldview. It doesn't send them in, into this emotional uh, spike that they lash out with anger or out of fear, but instead they, they allow themselves to kind of process it and then say, you know, is this something that I want to incorporate or change my worldview? Or can I say, oh, no, I've, I've thought about this and, and, and that's quite okay. And so I do think that there is this affective component that when you, when you can rest in a humble sense of, of security, you're going to be less reactive and less defensive when you're interacting with other people who differ from you. And, and, and I think that you've absolutely, you've absolutely pegged it. You know, I think another way that that tend that these things tend to happen is uh, it's not that we go in thinking I'm going to be open minded and that will allow me to have friends who are different. But sometimes it's you reverse the chicken and the egg. You go find friends who are different, and over time you start becoming a little bit more open minded just by interacting with them. And part of that is that emotional pull or feel that you feel toward them, because if you start hanging out with someone, you become their friend, and you imagine. Why, why would I hate you? It's, it's hard for me to understand why I would characterize you as this evil person. Um, it's much easier when it's just an online message board and, and a face or a person you never see. But the more you interact with and become acquainted with someone's humanity, the less likely you are to, to view them as, as evil and just want to cast them off. And the more willing you are to see them as the deeply uh, human person deserving of love and treat them accordingly. Uh, with some final thoughts, what are some, a few takeaways? Uh, I know you, you read a whole book and then somebody says, what, you know, give me a couple of things. What would you <laughs> like, uh, what would you like hope readers come away with after taking a look at your book, Humble? A, a few things. I appreciate you asking. So one is I hope they see the value of humility. I hope they understand that humility is not weakness. Um, it's not being noncommittal or wishy-washy. It's actually a, it's actually a strength. It's, it's this ancient virtue that is powerfully transformative and remarkably strong. And it requires a sense of security that, that most aren't looking for in our society. The second thing I, I hope that readers would walk away knowing is there are things you can do to be more humble. Right? You can uh, surround yourself with people who are different from you, who can challenge you, but also support you. You can ask feedback from someone you trust about areas where you could be a little bit more humble. You can work to uh, address your defensiveness and become more empathic. And then the third thing that I hope that people would walk away realizing is humility uh, takes practice. I mean, the only thing that I can liken it to is kind of like training for a marathon. And if anyone has ever done that before, that is a long slog, right? That it is putting in the effort time and time again, day after day, week after week, month after month. And in the midst of it, you kind of have to ask yourself, why am I doing this again? But you kind of have to keep your, your eye on the prize of there, there are benefits, there are real tangible needs for being humble. And in fact, I, I'm pretty convinced it's, it's, it's the right thing to do. I do it not because there are benefits, right? I think the benefits are because it's so powerfully transformative. I'm, it's impressed upon me to be humble because, uh, and, and by this, I mean, I'm working on it every day. I have, I have by no means, uh, you know, become the expert on this, but I'm working towards being more humble because I'm, I'm truly convinced um, it's right, that, that it's, it's, it's the moral and it is the uh, appropriate and noble thing to do. I appreciate all that. My, my hope is that listeners and viewers will take that to heart. I know we've been talking about the psychology, but I'll throw in a little theology here. We, we've mentioned at the beginning, this is a virtue that has been uh, touted by philosophers and religious leaders. It's, it's certainly a Christian virtue. I mean, it goes to the heart. Philippians chapter two, have this mind, this attitude in you that was also in Jesus Christ. I mean, it flows out of, and it should energize and be the center, I would think, uh, of how one lives the Christian life. So there is a dovetailing between what you're seeing in the psychology, the psychological research, 
and these uh, religious wisdom traditions, including the Christian tradition, if we're just willing to practice that more. Absolutely. I mean, I think about humility is, is, you know, next to love, humility might be one of the central themes of Christianity, right? You've got Jesus Christ who doesn't need to sacrifice, right, to lay down his life, but but comes down, right? This is God stepping down, becoming human, humbling himself out of love, not out of necessity. I mean, what an act of humility. And and when Jesus knows that his own death is coming, he begs and says, you know, if this cup can pass before me, but if not, not my will, but yours. I mean, what an example of humility. I, I mean, to, you know, if you think about the Lord's prayer about thy kingdom come, thy will be done. I mean, all of this is saying, hey, it's not about me, right? My life is not about me. There's a greater will. There's a greater thing to which I can dedicate myself, and I'm willing to shift my life accordingly. It's hard for me to imagine, you know, a more poignant example of humility um, than that. That's a fantastic note to end on, uh, Daryl. I appreciate your your book. Will in the program notes, we'll put uh, a link to that and some of your other research, and encourage folks to seek that out. I want to thank you for that work that you're doing and for your contribution to our series on evangelicals and multi-faith engagement and humility. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. Again, my guest has been Daryl Van Tongren, Van Tongren, sorry for mutilating the last name there. Uh, please uh, not only uh, take a look at uh, that book and the links, but uh, look at the other three episodes of this series and you'll find it helpful. Uh, thanks to all the listeners and viewers. And until the next episode of the Multi-Faith Matters podcast, I'm the host, John Moorhead.